Good evening and welcome at the London School of Economics. My name is uh, uh, Filippo Dionigi. I work at the Middle East Centre. The Middle East Centre is uh, a, a multidisciplinary research centre here at the LSE that facilitates uh, research on Middle Eastern and North African affairs. Um, and this uh, event basically launches a two-day workshop on the impact of the Syrian refugee emergency on neighboring uh, countries, especially the Arab neighboring countries, um, and will be um, the beginning indeed of, uh, uh, it has been made possible thanks to a grant that has been awarded by uh, uh, an impact acceleration account uh, uh, of the LSE, which is funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. It's fairly complicated. Um, um, the speaker will be uh, Madame Mireille Girard. Uh, Madame Mireille Girard has served as a, a um, representative uh, for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Lebanon since uh, July 2015. Uh, previously, she served as representative for UNHCR in Thailand and South Sudan. Um, Mireille's career uh, in UNHCR spans over 22 years uh, and includes a range of uh, functions both uh, at UNHCR headquarters in Geneva uh, and in country operations on the Asian, African, European and uh, Middle Eastern continents. Um, Mireille specializes in international protection and emergency humanitarian uh, responses. Um, we will let Mirel talk for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we are going to have uh, a discussion. We're going to open the floor for discussion, of course. Um, and uh, before that, I would nevertheless ask you to put your phones and devices on silence, please. If you are uh, those kind of uh, um, um, socially active uh, persons that tweet about things, you can do so uh, with reference to this event as uh, hashtag LSE refugees. Um, and... Um, I think I said everything I should say, and then, Mireille, the floor is yours. Thank you. Is this one on? Yeah? Uh, good evening. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be, uh, to be with you tonight. Thank you very much for uh, putting this very important subject on the table, and I hope uh, between today, tomorrow, and the day after, we'll be, um, be able to exchange notes and brainstorm uh, with different experts that are coming uh, throughout the day tomorrow, um, some of whom are already in the room today, um, towards you know, improving the refugee response in the region uh, as a, as a um, uh, continuation to the response to the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, so I, I would pro I'm proposing to uh, present three main uh, subjects uh, in this uh, presentation. As you can see, basically, first of all, how we're getting into a situation where we're reaching almost a breaking point for the refugee and the host communities in the, in the region. At the same time, uh, the prospects for return to Syria are, are, are pretty uh, uh, limited. And uh, then based on that, how do we envisage the future? How do we turn towards a medium-term approach uh, until solutions can materialize uh, outside the countries of the region? So this is what I would like to uh, take you through. It's not a PowerPoint. Don't, don't panic. It's just, uh, it's just a few slides to illustrate what I'm saying, but uh, it's not, um, there are no words attached to it. Uh, so perhaps to start with, uh, when refugees uh, came, uh, they were the first one to really think that this displacement would be short-lived. They thought they would be coming for six months, and we, here we are now six years after their displacement. Um, the refugees are the first uh, frustrated about this. 
the countries in the region, the humanitarian <coughs> actors are uh, disappointed that no solution can be found so far and that uh, there is no light at the end of the tunnel and how, how are we going to organize ourselves in this regard. So the first priority we had as a, as a humanitarian community was sorry to mount a massive uh, response. We had, if you look at Lebanon, the first year we had about 15,000 refugees arrive in 2011. Then it went up to you know, 120,000 people. The third year, 500,000 people. The fourth year, 1 million. Lebanon is a country with 4 million people as a population. So you just imagine the scale of this, what this represents. This is the largest refugee comp uh, concentration per capita in the world. It's a major challenge for a small country that is neighboring uh, a big war. Um, the response of the government of Lebanon was to, to say that, I mean, to allow people, we didn't have to negotiate for access to insights in Lebanon. People were allowed in either through a legal uh, crossing point or illegal crossing point. They were able to regularize uh, their stay after arriving. Uh, and the government uh, refused to have camps. And this is not something we object to as, as humanitarian community. UNHCR itself, over the past decades or more, is advocating actually alternative to camps if we can. Uh, sometimes camps is the only solution available because there's no land or there's a security issue. But in, in case we can go without camps, it's, it is better. It is less disempowering. It is keeping people active and mobilized uh, in control of their lives. Um, so the fact that refugees were able to scatter all over Lebanon enabled us as a response also to help everyone and not concentrate the assistance in the camps for the refugees, which in turn would have fueled tension over time against the refugees because the local community in those areas are actually struggling. These are the most impoverished areas of Lebanon where the refugees have concentrated. And therefore, if assistance had focused only on the refugees, this wouldn't have been a very, uh, a very appropriate uh, approach. So as humanitarian, we were able to support the hospitals in the area, reinforce the schools, uh, build water reservoirs for both communities, and that way we kept coexistence keeping, uh, f uh, kept together for, for a bit longer than it would have otherwise. Um, at the same time, the semi side of it is that we were only allowed to do temporary assistance, you know, short-term assistance. So what we are doing six years into the conflict still is trucking in water in some of the refugee settlement, dislodging latrine. We cannot build proper drainage networks or proper installation of, of uh, water and sanitation that would make people, uh, uh, you know, less re reliant on external aid that will establish more sustainable <coughs> and more environment-friendly structures uh, at the same time, um, and less expensive for humanitarian actors, because all this costs money if you do and redo year after year the same system of graveling the place because you cannot put a proper drainage system. Uh, it, it is much more costly for the international community. Uh, it is also uh, a nuisance for the local community because they see trucks passing all the time. It's damaging the road, etc. This, this policy of the government and the municipality was, uh, you know, was coming from a, a deep-rooted fear that refugees would stay and the idea that they should uh, really understand that they are here for us as short a time as possible, and when, when it's possible for them to go back home, they, they are welcome to do so. So that was the impression. And the landlords were 
were quite concerned that their land would be then damaged and therefore they will have installation with cement structures that, that they will have to deal with once the refugees have left. So that, that this approach, the day-to-day response, the constant renewal of emergency structures is what prevails up to this day. Uh, and it's very clear that uh, this is not something we can continue with. Uh, the vulnerability of people are on the increase. Um, as people get more and more vulnerable, they're less and less able to cope with winter. They're less able, able to cope with unsanitary conditions. Uh, and we have to change the approach. In addition to which, uh, you know, it's, it's more sound technically as well to go into a new approach. So it, it is becoming clear at this point that the hum- a, humani- a massive humanitarian response is still needed for sure because the vulnerability of people are very high. But it is not alone, the, the, uh, the, you know, this is not the only approach, and it, it doesn't suffice in responding to a refugee crisis of this magnitude in scale and, in, and over time, in time. So humanitarian response alone is not sufficient. We have to change uh, approach towards a more, uh, a more sustainable approach, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in the third part of the, of the presentation. But the result of these uh, six years of exile with temporary assistance renewed year after year is that refugees are really on the edge. Uh, People who came with savings have no savings anymore. These savings are long gone. People thought they would be using that for maybe a year maximum. They're not not able to do that. People who were renting an apartment at the beginning when they came cannot afford this, this anymore. They invite two or three more families to share uh, the same the same apartment. You have an average of three to five percent per room now. Once people cannot afford that rent, they move out to a garage or an unfinished house or a basement of a house, uh, or an abandoned supermarket <coughs> or an animal stall. There, there are a lot of uh, possibilities. Uh, then we, they can't afford that anymore. It costs two hundred dollars an average per month for a refugee rent, whatever the type of, 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 of accommodation you have. Then you move to something even more precarious, which is a tented settlement. In that case, you pay a bit less for the whole year, but this is, uh, this is a very precarious structure. It's, it's, it's plastic shit, basically. This is what it is. Um, so people have uh, these expenses. They pay rent, they pay water, they pay electricity every month. It costs you know, about $35 for electricity per month, about... about same amount for water. You have all these running costs. Often people compare the refugees in Lebanon uh, today to those who were coming as migrants before, because every year Lebanon had migrant workers that were coming in the unskilled labor areas where Lebanon, the economy, needed unskilled laborers. Um, This is not exactly the same. Yes, these are the same people. Very often the migrants, when the crisis hit Syria, they came, they called whoever they knew in Lebanon and asked for, can I come with my family? Will you, will you shelter me? And with the contact they had here, they were offered hospitality and they were able to come. Now, uh, uh, these people are not in the same circumstances as they were when they were migrants. One, they cannot go back home, so the temporary stay of three, four, more for se- three, three, four months for seasonal work becomes a year-long stay. Um, a temporary accommodation like a tented settlement was was a slum for migrant workers. This is what it was. Now it has become the daily living conditions of families with small children. Uh, people had, you know, able-bodied men were here to work and they were saving as much money as possible to send it back home. Now they have their family. They have to feed their family whole year round. It's not the same expenses. They pay a rent. They were not paying a rent. They, 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 they 
paying uh, you know, facilities. They have to renew their residency, something they didn't have uh, to do before because there was a visa-free arrangement. So the situation and the expenses, the running expenses for refugees are very different. And this is why they are now spiraling down into a cycle of debts and, 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 and the negative coping strategy. So when you have all these expenses every month, uh, you, uh, you have to cope somehow. The humanitarian assistance is giving you as much as possible, but the humanitarian assistance cannot pay the rent of everyone, the electricity bill of everyone. You know, at best, we can keep people alive. So what we do, we reimburse the life-saving surgeries in hospitals. We, we subsidize primary health care centers so people pay less. Uh, we, we reimburse the fee for, for education. But we cannot pay the daily expenses of everyone. If a child is sick in the family and it is not a life-saving intervention, it's a flu, then the family has to pay that. And where do they find the money? They borrow. What people do is that they buy on credit, they delay the payment of their rent, they, they, they borrow money from, from neighbors, from friends, uh, uh, and they get into a cycle of debt. So we have uh, compared between 2014 and 2015, a lot of the indicators have skyrocketed. When people have de had debts in 2014, uh, this has become uh, a much higher debt for a much higher number of people. We have about 91% of people in debts to this day. 91% of the refugee population has debts. Uh, last year, we had people with a, uh, an average of $842 of debt per family, those who had debt. This is increasing. They're all signs showing us that this year it's already close to, uh, it, it has already passed uh, nine, 900. Um, when uh, people had, uh, we had 50% of the refugee population below the poverty line in 2014, it has become 70% in 2015. And we are now doing a survey for the figures for this year, and all signs are that it will be you know, the same or worse. It's not going to get better. Uh, so in these circumstances, uh, people are really struggling, and this is what is really reinforcing us in that um, in that uh, um, thinking that we have to change the approach. We have to have a radical change in the approach or this is going to be disastrous. 55% um, of the population has become illegal now because you, there used to be a, a visa-free arrangement with Syria up to 2015 where people would have six months uh, visa-free entry to, to Lebanon, then you could extend it by another six months without paying a fee. Then you would go back for 24 <coughs> hours and then come back with another six months visa-free arrangement. Uh, since 2014, the government of Lebanon, because they reached a number of, four, uh, of one million refugees with a population of four million, and there was a, uh, really an urge within the government that this number has to be managed. We have to develop a policy to, to manage this situation. As a result of that, visas were established at the border with Syria. The, the consequence, one of the consequences of this is that people cannot renew their residency because if they leave to Syria, they cannot come back because they won't have the right visa. Um, so people have to extend their residency from within the country and that costs $200 for any, adult, any person over the age of 14. Um, there are discussions, and I'll come back to that later in my presentation, but just to let you know, all these recurrent costs that people have, half of the population has not been able to extend their residency. And being illegal has all sorts of consequences in terms of people's capacity to move around, to access services sometimes, or to, uh, or, or to uh, register the, the birth of their child, or, or to uh, maybe find some livelihood opportunity in the informal sector, although it's not allowed for Syrians to work 
at the moment. Uh, as part of that policy to manage situation, there was also a fear from the government that um, there would be a competition with Lebanese workers who are also struggling. Uh, in that case, the, the, it was it was uh, it was. Uh, um, there was a policy decision that refugees have to sign a commitment that they will not work. Uh, as a result, people are still working in the informal sector somehow, but it's about 27% of the adults that indicate that they have been able to work the months before. In average, this is the kind of percentage we have. And when they work, they work in average two weeks in a month. They, some work three days, some manage to work three weeks. There's a, it depends. There's nothing predictable. Uh, in majority of the time, people go and stand by a road and hope that someone will ask them to offload a truck or to sell something on the, on the roadside. There's no predictability in, in terms of income. Alors, just to illustrate what that, what that means, in terms of food assistance also, you know, at the end of 2014, 75% of the population were receiving food assistance. And we're now at 55 to 60%. Uh, that will be the target. That will be... The, 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 the coverage of the population. But I said earlier that we have 70% of the population below the poverty line. So there is a mismatch. Uh, and the answer would be to have more food assistance, but also perhaps in the medium term. Can we make people more self-reliant so they don't depend on food so much? Uh, other striking figures, as I said, if people manage to work two weeks, then they will earn $177 uh, for these two weeks. But in average, we've calculated that people spend close to $500 a month if you add the rent, the electricity, the water, uh, clothes for the children, uh, medicine, uh, supplemental food, even those that are on food assistance, they need, still need to supplement it, etc. So they're far from earning what they need. Even if they get food assistance on top of it, it won't be enough to cover all the expenses. Uh, and, and below here is the poverty line that I was mentioning. The poverty line in Lebanon is $3.84. That is the poverty line. So 70% of the population is under $3.84 a, a day. And then you have um, the extreme poverty line, who is, which is also called the, the, ba the basic minimum survival expenditure basket. So in other words, you don't have enough to survive. Uh, that is 2.9 in Lebanon. Uh, we have 50% of the population below that. Uh, so this is how severe the situation is. Um, at the same time, we have host community fatigue at the same time. As I said before, the refugees have come to the areas that are the poorest areas of Lebanon, uh, the north, Akar, the Beka, and you have sometimes in some villages twice the population. You have the, pop the refugee population that is higher than the number of villages. Uh, the number of population in the village. So uh, the stress on local communities is, is also very high. Uh, in places where in those villages you didn't have enough electricity before or enough water, then you have even less water, even less electricity. Uh, so the solidarity between communities have held so far. As I was mentioning, people knew people. You know, so the Syrian family used to be, the, the husband used to be working in that area before. He came wherever he knew someone. And because of the policy of the government to uh, not make camps, people have been able to spread wherever they had a solidarity network. And that has kept the solidarity together so far. It could be actually much worse. With the, with the level of vulnerability we have, the number of clashes with the host community could, could be higher. And it is not. So far, the number of incidents is very, is very limited. 
uh, and this is a chance, and we should keep it up as much as possible and avoid it to deteriorate too quickly. Of course it will deteriorate, or of course it has already started to deteriorate, uh, but we have to, to keep it up as much as, as, much as we can. Um, now, the, the risk is that with the stress on the economy, the unemployment rate also among the, the youth, particularly in, in Lebanon, and I see Hala there, I'm sure she'll elaborate on this tomorrow, you'll have more details, with that, with that uh, unemployment, uh, 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 the stress on the infrastructure, the, 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 the strain on the public services, there is a risk that an association be made for everything that is wrong as being the cause uh, of the presence of the re caused by the presence of refugees. There are a number of stress on the Lebanese economy that are not necessarily related to the to the presence of refugees, the presence of refugees being a consequence as well. It's, they're more due to the, to the war in Syria, so we shouldn't associate too quickly the two. The war in Syria has uh, reduced dramatically the export of Lebanon, because they can't export anymore through Syria. The war in Syria has dropped completely the rate of uh, tourism to Lebanon. People don't come. There's a war next door. Uh, so this is in a way, the same cause that made the refugee come here are causing these economic uh, difficulties on Lebanon. But there are economic difficulties on Lebanon that are directly related with the presence of refugees. And this is what I was saying. The, the, the increased demand for basic services, water, electricity, that has a cost for the, for the state. Uh, health services, education. There's a lot of support coming from the international community, particularly on health, education, but issues of for example, electricity supply, this is something that the government uh, meets by itself. So, so, so there's a lot of costs also on the economy. Uh, so the, the risk is that if there is no solution, no new approach, then the xenophobia will increase because there will be a scapegoating on the refugees for everything that's wrong in Lebanon, and there's a risk that clashes between community increase, and this is in no one's interest. It's certainly not in the interest of the refugees, but it's not in the interest of the local communities either. While we Facing this situation in Lebanon, the situation <coughs> in Syria is not looking better. Uh, and you are following the development, and you see that you know, we're not close to peace in Syria. <coughs> there is a peace process, that's, that's the good news. Uh, and you have all the different actors around the table, which is very important as well. That's a new development since September last year. We didn't have that before, so there, there, is, uh, there is hope. Uh, but since the, you've heard about the cessation of hostility in, uh, in February, since then, after a lot of enthusiasm among the, 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 the inhabitants of Syria, particularly in Damascus, a few days after this cessation of hostility, people were coming out, going to the restaurant, and there was, suddenly there was no noise of bombing at the background. There was a, really a, a feeling of peace inside Syria. That, that has dropped very considerably, very quickly. A lot of breaches in the, cease, in the cessation of hostilities. Since February, we've seen fighting in the northeast, in the northwest, Idlib, Aleppo, at the, at the Turkish border, IDP settlements have been attacked. You have, uh, you, have, you have been fighting in Latakia, Tartus, that had never been affected by fighting before, inside Damascus, in Yarmouk, in Dara, you name it. People are subject to snipers, booby traps, landmines, uh, blockers, bombing, shelling. The front lines keep on moving very rapidly. So where can we say there is a, a safe place in Syria? It's very, uh, it's very difficult to, to see, uh, to see uh, a, duration, a durable cessation of hostility at the moment. And that is not a ceasefire. That is not a permanent ceasefire. Uh, we have 
as uh, Stefan de Mistura was putting it, the, the cessation of hostility are barely, host, uh, barely alive. <coughs> I think his, his words are barely, barely alive. Um, and that has to really be uh, uh, kept. Uh, at the same time, there is a lack of trust for the political settlement. And only a political discussion is what will hold the ceasefire, will guarantee that the ceasefire will last. Not only will move from a cessation of hostility, but will move to a, a ceasefire, a signed ceasefire, and a permanent one. And if you don't have a political process to underlay it, what is the guarantee that this ceasefire will hold if the parties are not discussing with each other? How can, how can we be sure that this ceasefire will not break uh, tomorrow? So this is, this is where we are. We don't have that political dialogue uh, in a very meaningful way at the moment, and that is determining to changing the situation. So as a result, there's of course no immediate prospect for, for, for peace in Syria. But there is a process, as I said. And, and the, the, the fact that there is no immediate uh, prospect for peace make everyone look at safe zone. Shouldn't there be safe zone where the refugee could wait until there is peace and then they can, you know, they can go back to their homes? Um, a safe zone in, in the UN history uh, is not something that we, we feel very uh, confident about because there have been a lot of failure of safe zone in many countries, and we all know there was the anniversary of Srebrenica recently. Uh, there have been situations in Rwanda, in Sri Lanka, in Congo, uh, in many places in the world where these ceasefire safe zones were negotiated, but it the situation broke down, and civilians were encouraged to go to a place where, in the end, they ended up being targeted. So for the UN and the international community at large to feel confident that this, oh, for people, in, primarily people themselves, to feel confident to go to those areas, or for us to feel that we can promote such, a, such, a, uh, such areas, um, <coughs> the guarantees will have to be very, very high. The threshold will have to be very, very high. And in the Syrian situation, we know very well that there are some actors that are not sitting on the table. Some armed groups are not sitting at the discussion table. So what would be the position of this armed group vis-à-vis -a, -vis a safe zone that would have been discussed by others? That's not clear. So that's where we are. Now, there is, there is a discussion as to whether there will be areas that will stabilize at some point where people will, will go back. Uh, of course, in, in, in terms of the international committee, we have to prepare for solution, and this will be the main solution. This is what people want first and foremost. This is what we all want for them, to be able to go home. Uh, and, and that needs preparation. We, we can start already now working on skills training for people so they, ha they can find jobs when they go back, uh, they go back home. Uh, meticulously noting down, and we're doing that, all the events that happen in people's life during their exile, divorce, marriages, birth, death, all these need to be recorded. You know that a number of civil registries in Syria have been destroyed. And we're working, our team in Syria is working on re-establishing these registries because they're fundamental for people to have an existence in the law when they go back. Uh, so these kind of things uh, certainly need preparation and, and take time. They, 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 they start now. But at the same time, any premature return in conditions that are not safe enough, imagine a group returning when conditions are not established yet and being targeted of falling into an ambush, this, if anything, will freeze any hope for return or, or any confidence in return or in participation of refugees in the planning process for return by a few <coughs> years. Uh, and in experience, UNHCR has seen that in many, in many situations. Uh, solution and return means trust. It, it needs trust from people. And that, it's, it's built over time. Premature return could kill that trust and that could delay even more uh, solutions. 
Uh, that's for Syria. Now, where are we now in, the, in this context in Lebanon uh, with no immediate prospect for, for return, uh, with the situation deteriorating sharply day by day? Uh, there is really a need to look into the medium term. And UNHCR sensed that pretty early in the, in, the, in the response. Already in 2013, we were discussing with the UN Development Program to join us into a joint response uh, leading a dual response uh, together with the governments of Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey that would be focusing not only on humanitarian response but also on stabilization and resilience of the host countries. If we don't do that, there is no way the humanitarian situation, the humanitarian response will be sufficient. So that is called a 3RP. It's a regional plan that is both a resilience and, and a humanitarian response plan. Uh, but the resilience component of it, the support to the local institution, didn't pick up to the extent that we would have liked. And that led to the London conference. You've, uh, you've heard about this London conference in, in uh, February this year, where the donors and the countries in the region put themselves together and said, we have to do things differently. And we, the, whole, the countries in the region said, we need more guarantees from you. You know, we ca you know this is not enough to promise. We, we need to see concretely what you are uh, going to <coughs> do to support us on the longer term because we can't, we can't just keep on reacting like this. And the uh, host countries did, did commit, and we received on that day of that conference uh, $11 billion, $12 billion were pledged. That's the, the largest amount ever pledged for one cause in one day. And some of it was for this year, and the rest will be for the following years. And that is continuing. Not all the countries have pledged, so we're continuing to, receiving, to receive more money. In response, the countries in the region committed to also embarking into a medium-term approach that would be uh, allowing refugees to become a bit more self-reliant than they are now so they can support themselves. And at the same time, uh, the countries in the region wanted more support to the municipality, to the local infrastructure, to their own economy, so that jobs will be generated, bo both for their nationals, but also uh, indirectly, it will also provide jobs for, for Syrians. So that's the new logic. The, the idea is to turn this challenge into an opportunity and invest also in the host countries so they can, they can overcome the challenge they're facing and even look into addressing some of the challenges that predate the crisis, such as an, the job market in some countries, in Lebanon particularly, this was an issue much before the Syrian crisis. Unemployment doubled in 2011. <coughs> there were no refugees at, the, at that point. There is a chronic issue that is exacerbated by the presence of refugees. Why not solving that? It's all benefit for the, for the host country. They can come out stronger from this crisis than they were before, before entering it. The education sector in Lebanon, there's a lot of investment in the education sector in Lebanon at the moment, where actually many parents of Lebanese children in the past were not necessarily putting their children in the, in the, in the private sector, the, pri uh, the public sector, sorry, because there was limited investment in it. So the facilities were not maintained, etc. With the presence of refugees, then we can perhaps invest much more in, in maintenance, in equipment, so the, the public system comes out stronger as well. So the idea is to turn the logic and go from a challenge to an opportunity. But then, of course, it takes time. Um, now, the, the, the one approach uh, that was also promoted at the, you know, before the London conference and as a follow-up to the London conference is concessional finance. You, you've heard about it. The, the World Bank was solicited to figure out a formula that will work for countries like Jordan and Lebanon uh, that are middle-income countries and normally don't have access to development money because they are developed country. But because of the war in Syria, they're fragilized. They become fragile country. 
can they get some kind of specific attention by the international community to, to, to manage this crisis? And the World Bank developed an idea of concessional funding that will provide, let's say, interest-free loans for, for the countries like Lebanon and Jordan and some additional grants that will enable them to, to receive the, the cash flow they, they require for major infrastructure projects, something they didn't have before unless they went to the private market, which is very expensive for countries like Lebanon and Jordan. So this is also starting to materialize at the moment. Now, on the issue of self-reliance, the idea for us would be for refugees, instead of continuing to be spoon-fed and depend more and more on assistance, would be for them to have access to employment in areas where they're not in competitions with, with Lebanese workers. There are some areas in, in, the, in the market in Lebanon where Syrians traditionally have been working and are needed. It's agriculture, construction, and environment services. In those sectors, at least, if they could be uh, working, uh, then they would be able to pay their bill, stay legal, continue to extend their residency, uh, um, feed the, their kids, uh, don't send kids to work because they have to supplement the income of the family that is so indebted that they can't cope anymore. Uh, with self-reliance, a lot of this vulnerability will, will regulate themselves. Uh, and that would be for, let's say, the adults that are in good shape that can work. Those that are very vulnerable, you have a number of people that can't work because they have been victims of torture, they've been traumatized, they are chronically ill. These people will still need a safety net, but that will enable us to have a stronger safety net for a smaller number, instead of spreading it so thin that it becomes <coughs> meaningless at the end. So a stronger safety net, the idea would not be to spend less, but to spend better. So the, the assistance, the safety net will continue to be there, and more support will go to, to the Lebanese economy, while people will be able to be more self-reliant and, and therefore uh, cover their expenses. So this is, this is the idea that is being discussed. And the government of Lebanon is discussing that issue at the moment towards a, a simplified regulatory framework for people to be able to stay legal and maybe uh, also access to some areas of employment. But at the same time, there is this deeply rooted fear in Lebanon that I mentioned earlier that refugees are here to stay. And anything that looks like self-reliance immediately echoes in the collective uh, psyche of, of, of the, the, the host community in Lebanon. It's, it's, the, it's the government, it's the local population. Everyone is concerned about what if refugees were going to stay? And what if we have to naturalize them at the end because they, they will have no solution? So every time we work on, on, on the medium term, we have to at the same time really alleviate this concern that this is going to be forever. <coughs> And, and, and for that, it's important to continue, to, you know, to continue this dialogue on, on solution and uh, making everyone understand that this is a medium term. This is not about asking for permanent residency for, for refugees or permanent job, job permits. This is not about that. It's enabling them to stay alive while they are in exile. Um, and I will just uh, uh, finish by, by one point. I think what is... Uh, uh, I've reached my, my fine, time. You're fine. Right? Uh -huh. I'm okay. You started a bit late, yes. Okay. So, um, uh, what is very important is to, uh, uh, while we work on this on these issues of uh, of medium term, as I said, self reliance without awakening fears that this is going to be a local integration. We're not speaking about local integration. Only state can decide if they want to locally integrate uh, refugees. It's, it's a decision for state. It's not a decision for the international community. Uh, while we work on, we continue to work on, on, on resettlement solution outside Lebanon for those who can't stay. 
supporting local communities, local institutions to turn the, the challenge into, into opportunities to reinforce the Lebanese economy at a time that it, it crucially needs it. Uh, the big risk we need to avoid, and that will be my last point, is uh, uh, assistance dependency. The more people get into assistance dependency, the more difficult it is to entangle this crisis. We are not yet there. People are extremely vulnerable. They're indebted. Uh, they, they, they are in a critical situation, but they're not yet assistance dependent. Assistance dependency is when you lose all your hope on yourself. You lose your sense of self-worth, you, you lose confidence in yourself completely. At the moment, heads of family really want to support their family. They want to be able to, to work and, 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 and cover their the, the family needs. They, 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 they want to be in control of that. Uh, we're not yet there, and we need to make sure it doesn't happen. Because if it happens, not only does it lead to a, a cycle of depression, we may have suicide, we may have more domestic violence, child neglect, all the cycle of, of, uh, of uh, uh, psycho psychosocial uh, uh, impact that this can have on people. It also uh, um, completely undermines the confidence that people have uh, that they are in control of their life. They lose control over their life, and therefore they, they depend on whatever stipend they can get. And that is, uh, uh, that is very dangerous because of the, the, the impact I uh, described earlier, but also because this is delaying solutions. If a, if a family is economically active, provide for their, for, their, for their family, can keep maybe a little savings, <coughs> they will be the first one to go back home the day they can go back home. Uh, because they will have confidence in their capacity to provide for their families over there. They will have perhaps a little saving that enables them to rebuild maybe one, one room in the house until they, they can, uh, they can uh, rebuild the rest. And no doubt they will have jobs in Syria because a lot of the refugees have a profile of construction workers. When someone starts to restart Syria, there will be a lot of jobs for many decades there. Uh, so that will then turn into, into something... Uh, uh, that is that is the dream of, of, of people for the past six years. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. That was uh, uh, extremely comprehensive and uh, enriching data and, uh, and information, and uh, uh, perhaps a rather gloomy picture, but uh, one that we should be aware of. Uh, so we open it for uh, questions, and uh, I, I invite uh, those of you who want to ask a question to please actually ask a questions and not uh, give long statements that would not be uh, helpful. Um, so please uh, raise your hands, uh, identify yourself, and uh, um, if you agree, we can take two, three questions perhaps, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll uh, hear your answers, and then we move on with the rest. Um, I see someone there with their hands up with a white shirt. Yep. Hello, thank you for your very enlightening presentation. My name is Abbas Akbar. I've worked for various charities in Lebanon um, in the aftermath of the Syrian crisis. And the ideas that you speak about in terms of uh, self-reliance and development, they're brilliant ideas. However, in my experience, having worked with local communities that have backers from uh, in international charities, who have access to religious taxation, what that does is it creates ideas of aid that have greater sort of, uh, that lead more towards creating the assistance dependency that you talked about. How can we, in your opinion, create a partnership or a more sustainable partnership between UNHCR 
and such delivery partners from uh, communities maybe in London and New York and other sort of regional hubs where money is going uh, via these communities to be able to say that they should, uh, their delivery partners should work with UNHCR in Beirut to be able to drive more self-resiliency programs and not fall into the trap of assistance dependency. Okay, thank you very much. Um, raise your hands, please. There's a lady here in the second row. Thank you. Um, name is Jesse Harrington. I was just wondering what is the policy of European nations of taking more Syrian refugees mm -hmm. and um, what is happening, like do different countries have different policies and how is that decided, like how is it decided who will come and who will not mm -hmm. qualify? <coughs> Anyone else? Yes. Hi, thank you very much. My name is Helena Landelis. I'm a master's student here in international migration and public policy. I just wanted to hear to what degree these lessons and these thoughts are applicable to Jordan and Turkey as well, um, given that the situation looks a little bit different in Jordan and um, how the international community are dealing with, with, um, with the local context in that sense. Um, we can we take it to the next round, if that's okay? And um, um, so we have one question that is basically, if I understand correctly, the interaction between local NGOs here in, uh, in the Western context, perhaps related to religious network and their possibility to cooperate with UNHCR in a way that is not, uh, does not create that kind of path dependency uh, uh, with aid. Um, and a second question on uh, EU member states' policies towards resettlement possibilities for Syrians. Uh, and then the third point uh, that was just made, uh, the, the sort of regional dynamics uh, of the process. Yeah. Thank you. Hello. On the issue of, uh, of uh, networks and, uh, and working with local institutions, you know that the, the, the drive in all the countries in the region, but also of humanitarian assistance in general, we just came out of the World Humanitarian Summit, you know, and the idea is to really work more and more through local institutions uh, and more and more avoiding layers. You know, direct aid to end users. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, this this particular crisis is is of uh, unprecedented magnitude, and that has led us to really think out of the box on how we can innovate and think of new ideas. A lot of cash programs have been developed in terms of avoiding any intermediary, any overhead, directly the head of family receiving what he needs to to buy food in the shop. And, and that's enough. So we, we try to do that, certainly working with local institutions, and particularly, I would say, in the host countries, the, the municipalities are the first respondents, working with them, through them, or working with uh, faith-based organization or uh, any uh, local organization on the ground, because they have the knowledge, they have the insight of the, uh, of the place, and they know well how to organize ourselves, mobilize the energies of the of the of the, 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 the operating environment, that, 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 is, uh, that is the way to go. So we're going there now in terms of organizations that are based further away, 
they will have to demonstrate their relevance and how that doesn't create extra overheads. Uh, but there is a lot of virtual solidarity that can happen as well. We are at the age of internet, etc. There's a lot of, you know, payment. Someone reimbursing the fee of someone else in the hospital can be done without traveling. You know, there are things like these that can be done. We can be creative about it. One family sponsoring another family uh, to get the kid in school or, 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 or to get. Uh, uh, um, a process is uh, placed on a, on a child that doesn't fit the criteria of humanitarian assistance on the ground because we do only life-saving intervention. This kind of thing can be organized, and this is where we need uh, a lot of mobilization by everyone in the world. And that leads me to the to the second question about resettlement. Uh, it was you, madam. Um, we have been calling, you know, we call this uh, big conference at the end of March in Geneva, asking all countries in the world to please do something. Because this crisis is of a such a magnitude that we need a very atypical response as well. Uh, and what we did is to say to countries in the, in the world that you're giving us, quote, you know, a resettlement program is a program whereby countries, third countries, not the host countries in the region, countries, Canada, US, Australia, give us quota they not only have refugees in their country, but they accept to give us opportunity to refer refugees to them from other countries. And these are the refugees that are the most vulnerable. You're asking about selection criteria. This is not based on the level of education of people or their skills. It's not a migration program. It's a safety net. It's a protection safety net. We use it as a protection tool. These are people that for example, have been completely traumatized and can't cope with their current environment. They need urgent rehabilitation. And these, these countries have specialized programs for victims of torture uh, or specialized health care that you can't find in the host countries, this kind of program. So these are the most vulnerable that we select, and we use these quotas that countries generously give us to let these people go because they cannot wait for peace in Syria. They will not be able to wait that long. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is how it works. Countries give us some quotas. And what we said at the end of uh, 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 in March, at the end of March in Geneva, is that we need much more than what you gave us. We need 10%. We need basically to resettle 10% of the refugee population. And we have 4.7 million now in the region, 4.8 million in the region. Syrian, uh, we, need, we need basically close to, f to five, uh, half a million people resettled. Uh, and resettled through any means possible, either the formal resettlement program, but this is costly because states have a program of rehabilitation, they, they cover the expenses like accommodation for one year. Etc. This for a small state, for example, will be too costly, so they, they cannot afford to have too many. So we said, think about something else. How about scholarship? Allow people, they ask LSE to take a few students, uh, a few Syrian students for, 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 for three years, do a master here. Uh, or a temporary protection visa, give, give a visa for five years and then see what happens in Syria. You don't have to renew it. Don't give permanent settlement if you can't afford it. But if people, if people cannot return after five years, maybe you extend for another two years and see how it happens. And when the situation is safe, you don't renew and people are, will be okay to go back any kind of program. So beyond the traditional resettlement program, there's a number of, it's starting to pick up now. We start to have countries approaching us and, and saying, I want to give some scholarships for people. Countries that they were never giving resettlement spaces before. So to give an idea of Lebanon, we started the year of 2015 with an ambition to resettle 9,000 people. We finished the year with 19,000 people. 
that we had submitted. We're very happy with that. It's, it's, it's a doubling of, of the initial target. For this year, we're planning also 19,000. It's quite substantial, but it's still not enough. We still need more. For Lebanon, if you take the proportion, it would have to be 100,000, 10%. Can the refugees choose the country they can go to? No, because it is not a migration program. Again, it's not, you know, first come, first serve, or you have an ambition to go to Canada, so you come and see us and you tell us that. That doesn't work. It's we go to find the people because we want to go for the most vulnerable. And very often the most vulnerable are those people that don't think about that program, don't know about that program, don't even want to ask us. And we go to them and say, are you interested? You, there's a chance for you to go to Canada. Do you take it? And some say no. 40% of the people are telling us no. Why? I'm, I'm by the border. I, I want to be able to go back to Syria. My family's still there. When I can go back, I'll be the first one. I don't want to go too far away because I don't know how long it will take me to go back there after. But you have people that are desperate for, for going for resettlement, those that can't cope. Those, imagine a person with a dialysis. They need to do a dialysis every month. It's very expensive. And if you live in a tent, it's certainly not the conditions that you can, you, you, you can continue for very long with this kind of uh, heavy disease. Then you need, you need to go to a country where you can receive uh, uh, the care in, in a more sanitary environment, for example, or receive some financial support for it as well. So. People cannot choose, but when we, we, we look at the database, we look at the most vulnerable, we select this one. And then if we come across someone, because, you know, we can have registered people as not so vulnerable. Oh, that family is okay. They're not very vulnerable. But in between, since we last saw them, the, let's say the husband died, the wife is alone with three kids. She has a disability. She can't take care of the family. What happens? This family from one day to the other becomes vulnerable. So we need to constantly update uh, what we know, and we need a referral mechanism. If someone comes across a very vulnerable person, they bring it to our attention, or if it's our own staff in a particular location, they bring it to the attention of Beirut, and we prioritize that person. That's how it works. And then there was a, a question about how we can replicate, the, I mean, how similar is this presentation to the situation in Jordan? We have experts on, 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 on the countries in the region at the table, they'll be there and present tomorrow, so I would not have the presumption of, of extrapolating. But what I can say is certainly every country has its own specificity. Every country has its own history. Every country has its own capacity. And, 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 and based on their capacity, they have uh, embarked into a particular approach to manage this refugee situation. And it's different from one country to the other. Uh, uh, but what is clear, the, the, the common thread among all of this is that it's, it's hard for everyone. It's hard for the refugees across the region. It's hard for the countries across the region. Yeah. Thanks. Um, please raise your hands. I think uh, Francis Gaida would rent up. And then. Uh, yeah, Francis Guy, I'm head of Middle East at Christian Aid. Um, I have loads of questions, but I'll restrict myself. Um, you mentioned the high cost of re-registration and it was an issue that came up in the London conference and the Lebanese government were asked to do something. We've heard rumours that they are going to do something. I think you hinted at it a little bit actually in your talk. Maybe you could bring us up to date on what it looks like it's going to happen because that could be a big change. And kind of related to that, um, 
the whole issue of papers and the lack of papers, especially people being born, married, you know, whatever, changing your civil status. I'm aware that there are some members of the Syrian opposition who have been trying to look at producing some alternative registration documents to Syrian government ones because people can't, even in Lebanon, go to the Syrian embassy and get documents for various political reasons. I'd be interested in UNHCR's views on that and what is possible in this space before we end up with half a million people or more who have no papers, um, which, you know, there are already lots, there are already over 200,000 people in Lebanon without papers, but let's not increase it. And given that Lebanese and Syrians are great entrepreneurs, what, what actually, surely there's some little injection of something that we could do to create all these jobs. Do you have some thoughts on that? Thank you. Mm -hmm. all right, that, that was three questions, so perhaps we'll take, we take, them, we take them now yeah, and then we move on with the rest. I promise, I promise I'll get, I'll back, okay, I'll get so back to you. On, on the identity documents or the, or the residency documents, uh, um, discussions are ongoing. So, I mean, and there's a representative of the Lebanese government that, that, that will present tomorrow the situation, so uh, we'll hear more tomorrow for that, but I think what we can say at the moment is that there are discussions ongoing. I, I, I think the final, you know, discussions are not finalized, so I think we, we would be premature to, to discuss too much on that. But certainly everyone is, is converging to try to work together towards something more simple for people to be able to move around and to, and to stay legally. So I think that there's, there's a consensus between the government, the international community, that something uh, is being, needs to be done about this, and, and the discussions are very constructive. So we're hopeful uh, that, that the, 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 the uh, regulatory framework, let's say, will be simplified. Uh, on the issue of alternative registration documents, uh, I would say, you know, for us what is important is that the records are there. It's not so much that they go to the end, because as you know, like in Lebanon, if you want to register your, your child, there's about six steps. You start by, uh, the, at the village level, first of all, you need the, um, the hospital to issue a certificate, then it goes to the village level, then it goes to a provincial level, <coughs> and it goes to the, in the provincial level to a department for foreigners, and normally it should go to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a stamp, and then the Syrian Embassy. Now, people, and some people may not want to go to the Syrian embassy, but I, I'm not overly worried about that because what is important is to have, is to have the, the files in the pipeline. It's really important that the, the Lebanese authority have a record that this child, is, uh, this child is born of these parents and the parents have deposited the file with the authorities. Because when the time comes for uh, repatriation, we can probably accelerate this discussion and finalize the, the, you know, the stamp needed for, for people so they don't live without their documents. So it's very important for people to be aware of the necessity of these documents because when you are struggling with all the debts I was mentioning earlier, the birth registration is not the first thing you think about. And, and there's a fee attached to it. It's a small fee, but it, you know, it's still something else and you have to travel to the provincial office. It costs you money and, and all these things. So um, we have to sensitize people to the importance of it. And what we're doing, actually, we're working with the Ministry of Social Affairs together to sensitize people when they come to the office, we, we explain, we do information campaign with the Ministry of Interior to say how important that is, uh, and encourage them when they come to the office to immediately then submit their file to the to the provincial office of the of the Ministry of Interior to make sure that they, they start to file the case at least. Um, now, in terms of alternative uh, documents, I think it's um, 
it's very important that there are uh, documents that are recognized inside Syria, and not necessarily, by, I'm not speaking by the central government. It, it's important that the documents are recognized by whoever is going to be in sh the authorities of the area when people go back. Uh, but this is something that we need to negotiate when the time comes of origin. That's why for UNHCR, we, we take people on our books. We write all these records on our books because it's our duty to negotiate that. It's part of our mandate to negotiate that with the country of origin the day people go back. Recognition of diplomas, recognition of birth certificate on everything that happened in exile. So this is a backup, if you wish. It's, it's even better if people have the official records of the state, the host state and the state of origin. But if not, we, we, you know, we, we're still progressing, we're still documenting everything. <laughs> the same goes for any housing, land and property document. Did people have property before? Do they have the land deeds? Do they have something? We should keep that, scan that, keep it on record preciously and have the archives that we can help uh, giving people when they go back. And your last question was? Um, entrepreneurship in, in yeah. Lebanon. And just about statelessness, just to clarify, I mean, people without documents, you were hitting to that. There is a session on these issues tomorrow, uh, so I will not elaborate further on that. But what is very clear is that these people are Syrians. They are Syrian. It's the, it's the law of the blood in, in Syria and in Lebanon. The father gives nationality to the, to the, to the daughter, to, to, to the, the son. son. Yeah? So as long as the parents can demonstrate that you know, they are the parents of that child, mm. then the nationality is not at doubt. And that's why it's so important to have the record. So this, these persons are not stateless to our knowledge, and we, we want to avoid that they become stateless by documenting all this. It's very important. Yeah? Um, <coughs> and of course it becomes more complicated when you speak about a female head of household because if there's no father then the mother cannot transmit that so how do you a document you have to find proof with the religious authorities that they know the father of some witness in the previous village that can account for the father and, and therefore the records can be adjusted but it takes a lot of individual negotiation for each case um, on the issue of a Lebanese entrepreneur, I think that we'll have to ask the Lebanese in the room, but it's, it, there's no doubt that Lebanon is a very creative country. It's a country of entrepreneurs, for sure. And, and actually, uh, Lebanon has, in addition to the very negative impact of the, Syri uh, the Syria war on, Lebanese, on the Lebanese economy, some entrepreneurs have managed to actually uh, mitigate some of the impact of this, because they, are, they have been quite creative. So the question is to maximize that creativity in the context of solution, and no doubt the, the entrepreneurs of, of Lebanon will also be contributing very significant, significantly to the reconstruction of Syria. Um, the, the ports of Lebanon will be quite solicited probably, there will be a lot of economic activity, but we're not yet there, and at the moment people see more the negative impact than the, 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 any positive future prospects, so we have to uh, maybe start uh, uh, mobilizing the, the, you know, the enthusiasm and the creativity of Lebanese entrepreneurs um, towards the response here and now, and then later we work, we work together for solutions. Thank you. Um, there was someone at the back there who had their hands up uh, for a while. Yes, you lady, lady, less with the veil. Uh, Sandra, just down there. And so, thank you. My name is Anissa, and I had a question in relation to your last point you made about the Lebanese entrepreneurs and trying to mitigate some of the negative impacts of the conflict. Um, in your opinion, to what extent um, do the young people, especially the Lebanese people, um, 
um's attitudes sort of impact the government's policies towards the refugees and Lebanon is no stranger to hosting um refugees particularly the Palestinian refugees so do you think there's a difference between attitudes towards Palestinians and Lebanese um and so why um and does the government policy influence the attitudes of the communities or is it the other way around okay thank you and next question please raise your hands um and yeah just down down here so it's the gentleman with the green tie and then next is going to be a person there yes hi thank you very much my name is Will Mangum and I work for a organization called Integrity um uh, my question is on the education sector and I'd be very grateful if you could provide me an insight of your experiences given that the sector is receiving so much international assistance do you have an opinion on how this is divided between the host country students and refugee students um i found it very interesting that you used the medium term to look at the scope of these projects in the future but a country that comes to mind personally would be bosnia where they have now gone 22 years after conflict arguably entering the long term and you have an education system which is divided into two schools under one roof so some of these facilities are actually catering for two different um student types with different cultural divisions and that's inciting quite a lot of hatred in in some parts of of Bosnia so i'd be very grateful for your opinion on that yes and next you yeah uh hi um my name is tony i've just got uh, a question really based on sort of following up on on a couple of comments made today but uh, lebanon itself's got a delicate uh, um you know fragile sectarian balance um and and a well documented recent history of of sectarian unrest so the question really comes around the impact of this refugee crisis um in in terms of how it will impact this this fragile balance in terms of particularly local politics um local faith relations um in particular local communities because you have said they've been uh, relocating uh, across communities across Lebanon um that that balance has sort of taken years to be established and uh, that's sort of been rocked at its core um and do you think the crisis will change Lebanon forever so we take this tree and then we move okay. on to the next one yeah uh, okay you you asking me existential questions <laughs> uh, on the issue of the influence of the public opinion whether it's more uh, the 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 public opinion influencing the political arena of Azaz I would say like in every country it it goes both ways right uh, the, the, the governments are always alert to the, the the perception of the communities and vice versa what the government officials say influences what the, how the communities are perceiving uh, situation now uh, in terms of the role of the youth uh, um, we have a lot of hope uh, with the youth because they are uh the the youth in Lebanon they they very creative we have created a number of youth group all over Lebanon between Syrian and Lebanese youth and if you see these groups functioning they do joint project for the community and that that keeps the solidarity together that's for us a, a key to co- peaceful coexistence and they this youth um you know my 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 hope because they they really they don't differentiate who is Syrian who is Lebanese they are youth working together and and thinking about how they can they can do project for their communities and and be useful for all the persons etc so 
have hope, but the, the youth in, Leban in Lebanon are in a difficult situation because the unemployment rate is much higher for the youth than, than anyone else, than, than any other segment of the community. Uh, young graduates have a lot of difficulties finding uh, jobs. Uh, finding So the market doesn't seem to be producing the number of jobs that these youth will be needing, Qualif highly qualified jobs for them to, to enter the job market. The same in the impoverished area, the youth are also struggling. And then the, the youth that are in the impoverished area are the ones that then are in competition with the, with the refugees because you have unskilled workers on bo in both communities that are trying to find a job in the informal sector, and this is where the competition is. In other sectors, there's not so much competition <coughs> between the Syrian and the, and the Lebanese because they work in different sectors. But but the youth and in, in, the, in the unskilled labor, the informal sector and the impoverished area, this is, where, this is where the difficulty is. And this is why we have to prioritize this and create uh, employment opportunity for the, for the young Lebanese. And, and the UN will, is, is embarking on a, on a campaign for that to make sure that this is, uh, and this is really a priority for us because it's a priority that belongs to Lebanon. It's not related necessarily to the, to the crisis, uh, but it's, it's something that needs to be addressed as well. Uh, so, uh, I think, uh, did I miss part of your question? Uh, was it what you wanted to, to hear? Oh, yes, sorry, yes. Well, there's a, there's a, very, there's a very distinct history uh, for the, 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 the arrival of, of, uh, of Palestine refugees in, in Lebanon. It's been... Uh, half a century ago, and that has very much influenced the way the Lebanese government and the public opinion perceive the arrival of the Syrian refugees. And that is not, uh, that is not independent from the policy of no camps that was uh, adopted by the government. The government didn't want to reproduce camps that then <coughs> would last longer than they uh, would have hoped to, because the, the situation of Palestinian refugees, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not easy to resolve and it will take uh, still time and, and refugees are still in camps and this is not something that anyone would, would wish. So having opted out of the camp option for, for Syrian refugees is actually uh, certainly a good decision that enables us, as I said before, to help everyone and not to, to, you know, to, to, to crystallize energy on, 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 on a confined environment where Refugees are, you know, are becoming dependent on assistance, and therefore uh, the local community has the perception that the assistance is going only into the camps and not elsewhere. So yes, it is, but it's a different history, and and, and Palestine and, and Syria are, are two different situations. Um, and we hope that the peace process will lead to some solution in Syria, uh, in the in the medium term at least, and and therefore. Uh, that people will be able to, to return perhaps more easily than for the Palestine refugees. Uh, the other question was about uh, the education sector. Uh, the, in the Lebanon, uh, uh, response has been quite exceptional in that the, the school opened their doors to, 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 to refugee children, and this is, uh, this is admirable. Uh, by chance, there was space because they were not overcrowded. But you know, it was a decision in itself to allow refugees to come. And this was actually, it predates this particular influx. Refugees were allowed to go to school before. There's no restriction, there's no discrimination on access to school in Lebanon. But this was a big number. So the doors could have closed at that point, but they didn't. And what happens is that you have, you have two shifts in, in Lebanon. The first shift where the, the Lebanese kids are going, if there are spare spaces, they would accept uh, Syrian children. So the kids are together at school, in primary school. 
and gradually more and more. Secondary school, there are not so many uh, refugee children, unfortunately, secondary school, but we hope we can increase that uh, and mobilize them to go to school. But uh, uh, the uh, second shift was created by the government, the Ministry of Education and Higher Education, to allow a, a much broader number of people to, in the schools in the afternoon. So by that point, the kids have gone, so the schools are, are totally empty, and there was a way to uh, receive much more children. So we have this year about 155,000 kids in school. If you add other more technical schools, etc., it's about 200,000 uh, children. It's a double from last year, and this is fantastic, but we still have several hundred thousand kids outside school, so we have to find them, mobilize, particularly the, the youth. The primary education, it's, it's more attended. We have to mobilize those youth that have been out of school for three, four years, re-mobilize them, attract them to go to the, to the education sector, because it's for their future, and it's put them in a much more constructive environment than to just hang around trying to sell something on the street. But for that, we have to resolve the livelihood situation of the parents, because as long as the parents cannot provide for themselves, then the youth will be begging on the street or selling tissue paper or whatever. So uh, um, the, the will is there and the, the Ministry of Education is creating also more technical schools and uh, that I think in my view will be the most attractive for the youth because when you have been away from school for three, four years, you're not going to sit in a school with, when you are 15 with eight years old kids that are your level. You don't do that. It's, it's, it's not very, you, won't, you won't convince them to go back to do math. But if you say you do mechanics, they will be interested because it will be something that will give them a chance to have a better job when they go back home. So, so that, that is the bet for, for, for the year to come. Um, so it's not a segregation like in Bosnia. It's more for lack of space that there's a second shift in the afternoon. But in the first shift, the children are together. And in technical school, they are together. Yeah. And that, that is commendable. That should really be uh, emphasized. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's impressive. Now, on the issue of the... Community balance, uh, who was asking me the question? It was you. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I've been in Lebanon one year. I'm far from being, you know, the most expert person that you, you can find on the history of Lebanon and, 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 the, and the, you know, the, the composition of the community, etc. But it's very clear that the <coughs> issue of the balance between the three main communities of, of Lebanon is something that it's very close to the heart of everyone in Lebanon. It's very important for people to get that. And of course, the presence of one additional million of people that are predominantly from one community is creating anxiety. Hence, the feeling about uh, making sure that refugees are not going to be integrated. Because then, this is why there is that fear, because people fear that if people stay, then the balance will be affected durably. If it's temporary, that's fine, but if, if actually people integrate this, so that's the, the fear bef behind all these uh, this political discussions at the moment and the discussion within the public opinion. That's why it's very important to reassure everyone that we're not working on the integration of refugees or naturalization of refugees for that matter. They have a nationality, they have a country, they hope to be able to go to that country. The problem is that they cannot go back earlier than safe. You know, when, when conditions are not met, uh, we, we have to keep to take, continue to take care of them, and, and Lebanon is doing that, Jordan is doing that, Turkey is doing that. We need to keep them in dignity until they can, uh, they can go back, and they'll be the first one to, to take that choice the day it's possible. Yeah. I, I just want to say you shouldn't be too, too much concerned about the length of your experience there, because in Lebanon they said the more you stay there, the less you will understand of it anyway. So, I don't, so, it's, it's, uh, so I'm uh, still clear. Uh, yes, yeah, so probably you see. Uh, and there was a question here from... Uh, 
And then the next question there. Thank you. Haider Mustafa from Kurdistan region of Iraq. Uh, the question is that do you think that UNHCR is not using or lack of experience how to use the private sector in the crisis management generally? As an example, uh, the Japanese, when there was a, uh, that tsunami in 2011, mm. they, uh, through reconstruction agency, they used only private sector to contribute and they will be reimbursed for to, to be within 25 years, and they were tax-free for a certain period of the time as an incentive. In our region, for example, if someone builds a mosque, they will be forever, they will be tax-free until they will die. So if the, the, we change some rules, regulation, to save for the, to the private sector, if you contribute to $1 million, for example, you will be tax-free for 10 years. Do you think that uh, th something you understand to think about? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. And then Hi. Uh, Noor Mohanna, I'm student, master's student in social psychology at the LSE and formerly worked at Amel Association International in Lebanon, which is one of the partners of UNHCR and the support of Syrian refugees. My question is, seeing as the relations between Syrian refugees and the Lebanese people are extremely complex, seeing with the history, with now, um, Lebanese people are kind of resenting Syrians for getting assistances and things that they have been lacking for so long, like health care, like rent. Um, how or is there a balance between preventing assistance dependency and preventing the exacerbation of this hostility between the two people and preventing any kind of conflict between the two? And I have another quick question, if you allow. Um, the national NGOs in Lebanon have been reported to receive a very low percentage of the funds of, that are been given overall. And I believe, personally, having worked in one of them, that they are uniquely equipped to helping refugees because they are right there in the field and have the most experience directly with them and are the ones that are rem will remain after the funding is over. And so is there any plan to increase this percentage with the extra 12 billion that we're getting? Thank you. Yeah. One last one for this session. Yeah. Good afternoon. Thank you. My name is Anne Wagner. I'm a PhD student from the University of Edinburgh. And I have a follow-up question on how you deal with local, insti local institutions and smaller NGOs. So I work with Syrian refugees in the north of Jordan in an urban context, and what we find in the cities is a very complex humanitarian landscape with a lot of faith-based charities and a lot of smaller NGOs, many of them semi-professional. And what I find is that it's these smaller organizations, much more than the big agencies, that create assistance, dependency, because they like to stay under the radar, both of Jordanian authorities and the UN agencies, and often their funding policies are not very clear, meaning that they spend money quite arbitrarily and they often don't keep track of what the money is spent on. And so the question I have is, how do you deal with these smaller humanitarian actors in the field that can be hard to control? Thank you. Yeah, I think these two questions have the advantage of uh, presenting two contrasting pictures of, uh, of uh, small entrepreneurship and small organization role in this. Uh, yeah. Thank you. On the private sector, uh, I think you're absolutely right, sir. I think we, we, we're discovering as we work, and uh, there's certainly a, a bigger role to play for the private sector. And this is also what was discussed at the World Humanitarian Summit. You know, the, the private sector has to do more and to contribute more to humanitarian response, something that, you know, it's not very traditional for the private sector. 
private sector is profit making, and it's not always uh, humanitarian response is not always profit make, making. But at the same time, with creative idea, everyone can find uh, an interest in, in response in responding to humanitarian crisis. And the, the private sector has developed over time this uh, um, uh, corporate social responsibility uh, theory. So the private sector also is developing for itself an, an obligation to contribute uh, to humanitarian causes. So we can use all of this. Uh, in Lebanon, we have been, quite, and in, in Jordan as well, in Iraq, uh, I'm, I'm less sure about, about the details in Iraq, but we, we can, that will be discussed tomorrow. But in Jordan and Lebanon, for example, we've been working a lot with the bank for the cash system and ATM a card that, that people get, and with that, they, they just get withdraw money. It's very dignified. Imagine the father, the head of family, goes and withdraw money from the ATM like any father of this world, and he prioritizes the money the way he w wishes, and there's no, there's no queuing at a humanitarian office, there's no distribution, etc. It's, it's a much more dignified approach to humanitarian response. So that is one sector where, where the private sector has been quite involved, and we're working, in, uh, working more with innovation... Um, and technology, new technologies, to improve what we do to have. In the health sector, for example, in Lebanon, we have a, a private uh, health insurance company that is checking the bills that the hospitals are submitting to us to reimburse life-saving intervention at hospital. So, so, so you, have, you have a number of private sector involvement, but it's, it's embryonic. We can do much more, and, and I agree. And we're looking for, for good ideas. But I know that Jordan is thinking about free economic zone where there will be also some detaxation for, for, to encourage enterprises to work in those zones and then to employ Jordanian and Syrian at the same time. And they, they're looking also for facilities to export to Europe and they're negotiating with Europe to have facilities. And, and Lebanon is also doing the same. If enterprises can have facilities of export of their goods to, Syri to, to Europe, then they'll be more inclined to producing and that in turn will generate uh, jobs. That's a way of showing solidarity for, for, for countries. On the issue of um, uh, the resentment of lo local community, I think one, one way about it is to really have, to involve everyone and have mutual interest. To, to keep communities together, more than big speeches and nice uh, you know, values and, and moral speeches that we can give, if there is a common interest with the, with, between the communities, this is what keeps them together. So when you do a project that benefits the two communities, and AML does that, then you keep people together because if there is a community center and both you know, Lebanese and Syrian can go to the community center, get some health care, uh, some uh, you know, vocational training, etc., then people learn to know each other not as a Syrian or a Lebanese, but as people. They become friends. And, they, and the, it, it, it breaks all the barriers between people and they see the human being behind it. And it's very much what has helped in that Syrian refugee response in Lebanon because people knew each other from before. So they knew each other as human beings before they became one a refugee and the other one the host. And we have to keep that together through joint projects. So certainly the solution is to really involve everyone together and have joint projects. Now, on the issue of uh, how, help, how to help more um, uh, local institutions and the value added of the local, local, the local NGOs and at the same time the, the, the risk of some local organization that may not have the the financial accountability that some others have. I think in a humanitarian response, you can find everything. You can find 
and accountable partners. You can find accountable partners. You can find people that are newcomers, and you can find people that are that are uh, uh, very well versed into a particular region. And the idea is to really select the best the best value added that we have for a particular response. And it's not always the local NGO. Sometimes it's the international NGO. Why? For example, think about the uh, um, the emergency response in, in Lebanon. You had a number, you're speaking about AMEL, which is like a, a widespread NGO. They, they're all over the country. But there are some NGOs that are present in just one geographic area. We couldn't ask that NGO to please spread uh, like this in one year cover the whole country. It would be a disaster because they don't have the capacity to expand so quickly. They have to do it gradually. In between, you bring a big international NGO that has the shoulders to do that. They do it quickly. They bring staff. They bring material. They just do it. Then the question is to have a transition at some point with those actors once they have stepped up to the place. The, and, and a key actor there is the municipalities beyond the humanitarian organization and civil society. There's also the local authorities. They are the frontliners. And they have the will to do a lot of things. It's very important that all these plans converge into what they are planning for their community, sometimes there is the impression that the humanitarian aid is artificially plugged on top of what exists. It's, it has to be bottom-up. It has to come from the plans of the municipality and make sense for the municipality if we want it to, to hold. So I would not neglect also the, the local institutions. Yeah? And then in terms of the, the unaccountable issues that, that happens, that's why we have more and more safeguards for that in terms of, you know, for donors, they have... They have <coughs> code of conduct that they make their partner sign. They are more and more stricter and stricter uh, financial rules, uh, selection of partners that, in terms of their financial uh, uh, management to make sure that they're eligible for working or receiving funds for a particular donor. There's a, cer a certain number of uh, um, filters that are put uh, to receiving funding from the international community, being, being the UN or an international donor's uh, country capital sending money uh, to, to safeguard, to, to manage the risk, to make sure uh, that the, the risk is as limited as possible. Um, but sometimes a very small partner that may not have the financial capacity is sometimes the one that is actually happens to be present in a place where you need someone to respond and they're the only actor. So then the role there is to to build their capacity, support them to expand, to reinforce their own system so they become more accountable and therefore they can, they can serve better the cause that they, that they are there to serve. Thank you. Um, yes, I see a question there. There was someone at the back there, someone up there, and, uh, and one here. Okay. Hi, I'm Thomas Hame from ITV News. Just, just a Building on one of your questions, really, um, there's been, of course, new. Uh, there's been an article recently from the Independent with regards to kind of aid delivery with uh, the Assad regime and the UN, um, and them kind of saying, "Okay, fine, uh, the regime vetoing certain decisions." With regards to accountability, how does how does that affect donors when they want to donate to the UN? Because I've come across many donors who feel, okay, I don't want to donate to the UN, I'll donate to a smaller, smaller NGO because we don't know where that's going. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Thank you. Okay. Um, the lady here and then the gentleman here, please. Hello, I'm Charlotte. I'm a student at SOAS. Um, and I have a question on UNHCR's mandate. Um, as I understand it, it's, um, the mandate is initial relief or emergency um, assistance and I would like to ask the question to what extent UNHCR 
or is it to what extent is it is possible for UNHCR to enlarge the mandate and work on livelihood approaches, long long term solutions, um, and uh, to one extent to what? Yeah, that's. Um, hello, uh, my name is Joseph Galboni. I'm Lebanese. Um, we're talking about getting to, trying to get the people back to Syria and how scary it is a concept that you send them somewhere and they get killed. Uh, on the other hand, there are many places in Syria now that are reasonably safe that people can go back to. Another thing is by being like refugees, of course, they have financial needs and they get some assistance in Lebanon. Did you consider giving them like uh, financial assistance that would last, say, for a year for them to go back on their own where they want in Syria and reestablish themselves there? Alors, uh, on the issue of, uh, uh, of uh, humanitarian assistance, I think uh, um, I, I didn't get the detail of your question, but if, if I understand correctly, you're speaking about limitations sometimes in delivery of help. I mean, in the question of, of Syria, uh, there has been uh, a lot of delivery of aid, an increase in the delivery of aid in besieged area, in hard to reach area, but we're far from being where we should be. Uh, and it's still very complex to get the right authorization to deliver for humanitarian actors. It's still a very difficult situation. It's much more than last year, but it's, it's, it's much less than what we should be doing. So it's a constant struggle to have more aid going into the hard-to-reach area and besieged area. Now, uh, donor, I mean, in terms of the accountability of UN deliveries or, or NGO deliveries, you know, all agencies, and we're all bound by a code of conduct, we have strict financial rules, right? we all report to donors. Donors put the, um, the requirement for, for reporting that they need for their own constituency, also their parliament, etc. So it's a complex process of having reporting plus audits plus uh, inspections, plus visit by donors to see by themselves, control with the paper. So we try to be as transparent as possible. Now, uh, when, there is, when it's a question of authorization and reaching area, it's not so much the accountability of the agency, it's the possibility to get the authorization to deliver in the, in the besieged area. Um, on the issue of uh, uh, the mandate of UNHCR, um, actually the UNHCR has a mandate to, to, to provide protection together with states and to work with states that are receiving refugees to provide protection uh, to, to people that, have, that don't have any more the protection of their state. That's what the word international protection means. It's like a country doesn't, doesn't, cannot protect anymore uh, their citizen because of the war or because they are persecuting these people. Imagine a particular ethnic group or a particular religion that is persecuted in a country. People flee as a refugee. They cannot benefit from the protection of the state because the state is actually the source of the, of the persecution. Uh, in that situation, people flee their country and, and seek protection, and they get protection either by states, and UNHCR is supporting the states to provide that protection, or when the state is not providing, UNHCR can provide it by substitution as well. Uh, but we have a mandate that goes beyond that. It's not only helping people in exile, we have a mandate for solutions. It's less known, but we have a mandate to, that has been given to us by the General Assembly of the United Nations to find solutions, and this is something you don't find in the Refugee Convention, so it, it doesn't appear clearly, but it is the, in the mandate of UNHCR. We have a statute uh, that was given to us that's, that tells us that we have to work with state and states have to collaborate with us to help us realize solutions for refugees. And, and, and the solutions for refugees are voluntary repatriation when people can go back to their country, 
resettlement to third country where uh, it's possible when we get increase, uh, or helping people stay in the country if the country accepts that this is a possibility. So we, we, we strive for that. So the longer-term livelihood issues and particularly reintegration when people go back home, the main solution really for the majority of people is return home. This is what they would prefer. This is what restores the normalcy of the abnormal situation that was generated by a war or something else. And reintegration is a critical component. And, and UNHCR is, is quite uh, actively involved in this for several years after people have returned to make sure they're anchored back. They don't have any discrimination upon return, that they recover their ID card, that they can have access to services like everyone else, and they're not discriminated against because they were refugees once in their life. So we have a, a duty to monitor that long after people have gone back to make sure everything's okay. When we feel that it's okay, then we, we pull out and we let the development actors continue on the longer term for everyone, the, the, the community that never left and the refugees. But we have a specific attention to the refugees that have returned for several years after they return, because they may face specific problems. Uh, and the last question was about the possibility of return to Syria and certain areas. Ah, yes. Uh, I think the the key there is is uh, people's decision. People are the best judges, and and for us, we always rely on people. If if a person wants to return any time to this country, no one is. It's in no one's power to, 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 to change it. But what we wouldn't, you know, it's people's decision, it's their right, and uh, we're not there to, to object to it. We, we, we can just make sure that people have sufficient information and they're, they're returning on their free will, making sure that they're not fooled by anyone. Now, going to the point of giving assistance to people would mean an incentive. It's like encouraging people to return. And as long as we're not convinced that the situation is safe, you're saying there are a number of safe areas, and you know better because you're Lebanese, so you, you know more the region that, than me. But what I know as the United Nations is that at the moment, the front lines are very fluid. What is safe today may not be safe tomorrow. And I have no guarantee on that. So I, I would not position myself as UNHCR in a situation where I'm encouraging people with money because by, by giving that money, I'm influencing the choice of people that are desperate here with a lot of debts. If they get one-year assistance, it's going to be very tempting. That will influence their choice, and that may trigger their return at a time where the conditions are unsafe. So we do that, providing incentive for people to return. We do that when we organize a repatriation. But that is when we feel the conditions are safe. We have a guarantee. We've negotiated with the country of origin that people are not going to be discriminated upon return, that we have safe access, that there are uh, mine surveys at least, so that people don't jump onto minefield and this kind of thing. When we have these guarantees, by all means, we promote return, we give cash grant. We, more than that, we pr create projects in the countries of origin to help people reintegrate when they come back. So that becomes a promotion. But at this current stage where we have barely a, a, a cessation of hostility, barely holding, giving cash assistance at this stage would be something we wouldn't do because it would be it would be very risky. People would trust us, and maybe we have no guarantee that tomorrow they will go back to a place where fighting will resume again. Thank you. I have, I have to close the proceedings because we're running out of time. But uh, um, before that, I want to just make a, a very short announcement. That on Thursday, uh, 23rd of June, uh, Dr. Fatima Lissawi, who is with the Middle East Center, uh, will launch her report on investigating the status of Moroccan national media uh, and um, in the wake of the 
2011 Moroccan Spring Protests, um, and registration for this event is open. Uh, now I would like to ask you to please join me in giving a very, very warm sign of uh, gratitude to Mireille for uh, uh, her talk tonight, which uh, I found uh, enlightening and laid the ground for uh, uh, what I hope will be a very successful workshop. Uh, thank, me. thank you very much. <laughs>